You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the Drama Book Show. I'm David Regano. I am Mark Eugene Garcia. This is our fifth episode. Wow. Yes, time um, flies. And today we are going to be talking about Hamlet's Mirror. Hamlet's Mirror, what's that? It, it's a book by Elma Lins Canefield, who is a licensed therapist. And of course, the title refers to the line from Hamlet, acting is to hold as twere the mirror up to nature. That is amazing. So she she talks about how to approach acting from from a therapeutical standpoint and how to hold that that mirror up to nature in a healthy way. That's really exciting. I liked listening to some of her own experiences mm-hmm. that led her to get to this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who who find their way into this industry have anxiety issues already <laughs> and i and i won't pretend that this industry and the things that we have to go through doesn't contribute to, to that so this is really talking about looking at your career and and looking at getting yourself on stage from a therapeutical standpoint and really i i joked about this on the night of it, it felt like we were in group therapy. It really did. I know that as as someone who is also approaches this world through a lens of anxiety, um, <laughs> it it really did help. Just listening to yeah. listening to her talk yeah. and talking to her afterwards, but it just it really showed that I'm not alone. And I think mm-hmm. that was the most important That's part. That's such a big thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're a writer primarily. Both of us are writers primarily. Uh, but you do act. Yeah. And I, uh, I I get myself on stage occasionally. I've I've got a performance coming up next month that I'm probably going to have to flip back through this. But <laughs> again, in the days preceding the show, I, you know, I do cabaret. Do you, do you still feel stage fright? What we call stage fright? On a daily basis. Yeah. yeah, I think about that a lot, especially because not only do every once in a while I perform in something, but I also have to get up once a week and do these yeah. events, whether it's you or me hosting or working with our guests or working and with our audience. It's amazing to me the number of accomplished writers mm-hmm some of whom are theater people and some of whom, but especially if they're theater people who will be heading down the stairs to, to come to this presentation and, and they'll go, Oh, I'm so nervous. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, 
you and I are going to sit on stools and talk, and half the people out there are friends of yours. Like, we, I've had people who have said, and I'm not going to name names, mm-hmm. but some some people you wouldn't expect yeah. say, I'm kind of nervous about, I think part of it, and this is flattering, but they go, I mean, I'm, I'm talking at the drama bookshop, and we're like, oh, this old play, you know, yeah, we're, right? we're zero every day. I work. Also, I think, though, it's anytime you put yourself out there. Yeah. I noticed that, yeah, I'm nervous when I'm acting or, or anything like that, but if I'm really putting my own work out there every mm-hmm. uh every couple of weeks at the bmi workshop i have to present a song yeah often i have to sing my own song and oh, wow. i'm already nervous yeah. about singing my own song but then i'm in that place of like oh wait they didn't laugh did they not laugh because i didn't hit the note did they not laugh because i'm not performing it right uh-huh. did they not laugh because the lyrics are wrong uh-huh. all of those things yeah. and you spiral and you're standing up there and you're no longer in in the moment you're mm-hmm. completely gone that's something that I know that when she was speaking in the book about spinning the way you think or about facing those fears, that all of that came to mind. Yeah. And that's why I was like, oh, God, I need this book. <laughs> do you remember? I mean, I know that you do. When we, when we took our musical to Chicago. Yes. This was in 2011. Yes. <gasps> and it was the night of the show. Mm-hmm. And I said to you... I think I'm just going to stand in the back. Yes. Do you remember <laughs> do you remember what you said to me? I don't. <laughs> you said no you're not because you won't stand in the back, you will pace. Yes, that you're sounds You're going to sit next exactly to me. like me. <laughs> and I was like you're right. You're right. That is what I would that is what I would have done. I would have s- stood in the back pacing probably making you nervous pacing so so you said no you're gonna sit down in the audience next to me and i i think had i been in that place too i would have probably been pacing around if i had been the one to want to stand in the back Uh because i'm i am that person it's it's so funny how anxiety really does define us in so many ways Mm -hmm. and I remember being nervous at things as a kid and thinking oh you know when i'm older that's all going to go away. But somehow it gets worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you ever um have you ever called out of work because of anxiety? I had a very deep dark experience with anxiety where uh-huh. um my old job closed and I had put such a definition of myself into that job that when it closed and 30 of us lost our jobs, mm-hmm. I remember I was at dinner with friends and someone said, "So what are you going to do now?" While I was talking to them, I noticed like sweat pouring down my forehead. And I'm like, well, it's a hot restaurant because it's Peruvian food. And I went outside in February and was like, I'm just really hot right now. And I'm standing there with no jacket and still just profusely Uh sweating. And my heart is pounding. And I went inside. My husband was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And then it just didn't stop. And so I turned to him. I'm like, I need to go because I'm obviously sick. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, I have a flu or something. I knew what was wrong, but I just said, uh-huh. it's this. because I did, And they were like, oh, okay, we'll feel better. I went home, and he came home and said, uh, are you okay? Like, you know, I brought you some soup. And I was just like, babe, it's not the flu. And he goes, what? I'm like, I froze up. I, I had stage fright in a real environment. Mm-hmm. So that happened. I started thinking, like, oh, God, like, am I going to be able to, to deal with that? And then it happened a few days later at the store when the cashier just said something like, Oh, I see you more often than usual. And then at the bank and little by little for the next six months, my bubble got smaller and smaller Uh and smaller until I was not leaving my apartment. Uh And I was in this place of like, 
Will I ever present my work again in front of a in front of a crowd? Will I ever act again? Will I ever do any of these things that mm-hmm. I used to enjoy, or will I just now look for a job that requires me to stay at home? And what does that mean for my marriage? What does that uh-huh. mean for my friends? Yeah, it took a lot of time and therapy to get out of there. And honestly, the thing that really flipped it was doing encore because I almost wow. said no uh-huh. when they reached out. I almost said no because in that place, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to be in this in this world. And then I had gone through enough, uh, enough, but a, good, a chunk of therapy and been working on it that when the opportunity arose, I said, you know what? F it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And that to me, like coming out of that was like, there is nothing less private than having cameras on you at all times of <laughs> your life yeah. for a week. And so immediately after someone had offered me a role in something and I had said, let me think about it before I left and coming into it, I was like, no, I'm gonna do it. I'm I'm doing this. I'm back. Good. And it took it took that, but it's still there. It's yeah. still anytime I yeah. get to perform, it's still like uh, in that place. I I had a day. You made me think of something else as well. But I had a day. I was directing a show, and I just I can't remember. It was it was a combination of things because there's always multiple micro anxieties going on when you're doing a show and outside things. And I just woke up and I had the most debilitating anxiety attack. Mm. And I called the producer and I said, I'm sick. And this is what I want you to do. I can't come in to rehearsal today. This is what I want you to do. And then I called the choreographer and I said, I'm sick. And I would like you to go over these things. Like, this is what I want done in rehearsal today. And then I called the musical director, who was my brother. And I said, <laughs> I just called the producer and the choreographer and told them I'm sick. I, I'm having a panic attack. Oh, God. And I cannot come into work today. So they already know, but this is what I want done. Please call me. when. They, and it just, you know, and, and and you have to come to terms with the fact that, like, even now I'm saying, well, I told them that I was sick. I told right. my brother that I was having a panic attack. I was sick. Yeah. It's always having a debilitating a panic attack. Yeah. I was sick for the day. And you never know. I've I've even been here at work and something mm-hmm. will happen and it'll I will spiral. Oh, yeah. And I'll oh, just be yeah. I'll just be working in one of the the coolest, most wonderful places yeah. that you could be in New York City in a job full of creatives and guests that are all creatives as well. And just like heart beating terrified spiraling about something that's totally nothing and that's that's what it is i when i was in college and i think it was because i was at that point really pulling away from performing and moving closer to writing and directing but i was getting the worst stage fright Mm -hmm. just about getting up in front of anything and a friend was directing a student production of Assassins. I didn't audition, but she came up to me after the auditions. She had not found someone to play Booth. (laughs) And she offered it to me. (laughs) Offer only. Senior year of college. John Wilkes Booth in Assassins. And I said, no. And I said, no, I'm too busy this semester. That was a lie. Kathy, if you're listening to this, that was a lie. I was, it was my anxiety. The idea, her, when she asked me to play this dream role, this amazing character, the idea of getting up on stage made me so sick to my stomach that I turned it down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's conversations like this and conversations like the one we had at the store are, are ones that, 
remind us that we're not alone in this. And I think yeah. that that anxiety does that. It makes you feel like you're alone mm-hmm. and it makes you feel like you're the only one going through this, that you're a failure. How are you going to do the thing that you love doing because it scares you? And this was showing us, no, that's not true. Like you, you still can yeah. and you're not alone. And not only that, there's somebody who can help you. There are mm-hmm. people who can help you. It's nice to see that the professionals yes. still have this because uh, this is the first episode that we're doing that wasn't moderated by either you or me. Right. We had a guest moderator mm-hmm. come in who is someone who had worked with Elma, who had worked through his own issues, which he talks about in this. Someone you might have heard of named Patrick Page from Town and Spider-Man and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh-huh. And currently has his show, All the Devils Are Here, which he was, I think he was about to go into work. He was promoting it he while was he was promoting here. It. Yeah. Um, but he was also having anxiety over the fact that he was like, oh, I open in this two-week, whatever it was. So yeah, to there's also something about hearing someone who you have watched on a Broadway stage, watched command a Broadway stage, and hearing that, oh, he goes through the same stuff. It doesn't have to be the exact same stuff, but no, he wait. feels that. But it's it's true. It's It's something we all experience, but I think we often tend to think it's just us Mm -hmm. that's just our our anxiety doing that yeah Uh, i'm excited to give this a listen yeah here we go so let's listen to our event for hamlet's mirror by elma lynn's canefield moderated by patrick page hi i'm patrick obviously welcome thank you all for coming i'm here to introduce you to my friend and former therapist Elma Canefield. I first came to Elma in, oh my goodness, Elma, probably 1993 or 94. <laughs> and I worked with Elma for uh, a long time. I can't remember how long, but over a decade. She helped me tremendously. And much of the wisdom that she imparted to me is in this wonderful book, Hamlet's Mirror, the title being taken from Shakespeare's play, obviously. Hamlet, where Hamlet says that the purpose of playing was and is to hold the mirror up to nature, to show virtue of his own image, scorn her own feature, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. So that's where this comes from. Now, in the case of this book, it's also descriptive because the book is not only to be read, it is a kind of mirror itself. Each chapter ends with reflections. You're invited to take a look at where you are, for example, on the performance anxiety scale, on the, well, Elma will go into it, and I'll let her talk about all of that. So, Elma, would you like to say anything? We're going to have Elma read a little bit of the beginning of the book in order to kick us off, but is there anything you'd like to say before we begin? Well, I'm thrilled that you're here with us, and many of you have come to see and hear Patrick full of excitement, and I hope you leave full of excitement about Hamlet's Mirror. So, welcome, welcome. I see many faces that I know and many faces that I don't know, which is very gratifying. So thank you for coming out on this really ugly evening, and let's make it a beautiful evening, okay? So welcome, welcome. Why don't you read the beginning of the book? So it's it's a wonderful opening uh, tableau. Each chapter starts with these wonderful tableaus that make these clinical questions personal. And the first tableau is is pretty wonderful. So I asked Elma if she'd start there. Okay. Tableau one. It's called The Young Woman. 
take one. The young woman stepped up from the wings onto a small New York stage and into the cone of light shining down just for her, trying desperately to ignore the sounds of wrestling paper and the shifting bodies in the creaking chair, she took a deep breath. The whirling voices in her head were more difficult to discount. What do you like me? Do I love her? Okay. I hope I can hit that note. Seconds felt like hours. She closed her eyes, rocked her head slowly, and gently tapped out the rhythm of the slightly under-rehearsed melody as the first notes of her music reached her. She took another deep breath, held it, and then slowly exhaled while lifting her chin, focusing on the exit light in the back of the performance hall. The young woman opened her beautifully painted mouth to produce silence. She never sang again. That young woman, me. Thank you. So that's how the book opens with uh, a kind of confession. So you literally lost your voice. You were a singer. Color of Torah. Perfect pitch. Yeah. Came from the Midwest in New York City. Yeah. And here you were in an audition situation. No, performance. Performance situation. Tell us what happened. Well, I went to doctors. I went to teachers. Nothing. So I gave up, and I went back to St. Louis. I went to a psychiatrist who said I had an adjustment reaction. If only I could adjust to my environment. And really, nobody could help an struggling artist, and I was struggling. And I married, and I had two children. And I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be somebody who could help artists, understand artists. So I went to graduate school. I learned all I could about what made artists too. And I moved back to New York and I'm looking at Audrey's and I joined the, the Institute for Performing Artists. That was my first day here. And then I got the opportunity, I opened my private practice. Oh, this is interesting. This is New York City, right? Mecca for performing artists. I thought there'd be hundreds of private practice who teach to treat performing artists. Zero. I was pretty successful. And then, <laughs> well, when you're a number of one or zero, you're pretty successful. And then I got the opportunity being the founding director of the counseling services of the Juilliard School. So that was a dream come true. I consider myself pretty fortunate. You came here as a performer. You found that you were in a situation uh, where you needed counseling. You needed somebody who understood performers and understood the mental health side of it and understood performance anxiety, stage fright, all of those kinds of things, and there was no one available. So you essentially became that person. And over the years, you say you you learned additionally from your clients what, what their needs were, right? And you, along the way, began thinking about a book or thinking about things you'd like to be able to say who 
to people who didn't have the great good fortune that I have what being have? in the room with you. What, 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 what is that what in terms of Hamlet? You know, what is the book the about? I kind of made up. Well, and performance potential is being and doing the very best you can be and do, knowing what you know at the moment of performance. We're set off to school and just do your best. Well, we do our best at different times. If you're about to play Tchaikovsky's violin concerto for the first time, you may know it, you may even have it memorized, but you're going to play it differently the third time than you do the first time. Why? You practice. You know it better. It's in your fingers better. It's in your bowl better. It, it's in your fiddle better. I learned what prevents artists from reaching their performance potential and what empowers them. And I also saw developed four personality profiles and two fell into, I call it the diva syndrome. The diva syndrome where the energy is such that you can't possibly reach your performance potential. And two, you can and do. And they're pretty complex. But when you read the book carefully, the reflections that you were talking about help you move through at a fairly reasonable pace. But with the grace, it doesn't make us feel so complicated. And what are those four personality types? Uh, well, the first one is the problem, problem written personality. The second one is the pugnacious. The third one is the promising. And the fourth one is the problem written. So, and as you go through the book, you can take these reflections with a scale of, say, one to ten. No, it's all finished. scale, one through eight. One through eight. <laughs> so, uh, a one, a one through eight, and you can sort of rate yourself as to where you are in these various personality you can do types. Do it every day if you want. Yeah, and move yourself toward a more helpful personality type if you find that you're in a negative or destructive personality type, right? Oh, okay. If your thinking is wrong, you have a saying. Is <laughs> everybody ready to get up on his or her feet? <laughs> One of the things that I realized very quickly about someone who is really um, prone to reach performance potential is thinking the way they think. And I have a mantra. But in order to really embrace this mantra, you have to get up on your feet. <laughs> and it goes. You can listen to it first. When you change what you're thinking, you will change what you're doing. When, when you change what you're thinking, you will change what you're doing. Now we dance. Oh, now we dance. <laughs> When you change what you're thinking, you will change what you're doing. And it is so true. <laughs> think of a negative thought. Now, think of a positive thought. And think what you're going to do with this negative thought. And if somebody wants to tell their negative thought, do it. Oh, <laughs> you get the part there. 
You see, you're not going to get the part that you want. Okay. Okay. Now, how can you change that thought? Can you put the energy, that negative energy, towards something constructive, workshopping? What was his thought? I can get the next part. <laughs> what? I can get the next part. Yes. And how would that make you feel? Really bad. Okay. When you change what you're thinking, you can change what you do. It. Go after the next part. I, I would start studying again. Uh, studying more monologues. Start reading again. You change what you're doing. Thinking is so powerful. Right, right. Thank so you. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the power of of your thinking, right? That's what we're talking about. Um, I know for myself, I, I I simply live my life with the notion that what is happening is what is meant to happen. What is, and uh, so if I don't get a role. Uh, then I think, oh, okay, that one's not for me. There's something else. There's some reason I'm meant to be free right now. It may be that I need to be there for my family. It may need I need to be focus on myself. It may need uh, I need to focus on Paige at that time. There are a lot of different things that I might need to focus on. Uh, and I, I, I immediately, as soon as uh, as the disappointment comes, I simply begin to ask myself, all right, well, why? Why am? Why is this? I, I assume the best from the universe, right? And and act uh, in that way. And I think that must be something that perhaps I, I kind of got by osmosis. I don't remember you saying those exact words or this mantra in therapy, but it's certainly something that I absorbed. Is that something that you feel? Yeah, but instead of the universe, it's really in you. I have a control over my thinking. That's right. Yes. Right. Nobody controls your thinking but you. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you also said in, in life for people who aren't performers at all. You want to talk about that a little bit? You talk about it because you talked about it so beautifully. It was really people like you, Patrick, who awakened me to the fact that this book was not only for performers. Mm. You'd say to me, Elma. This book can help anybody. Sure, yeah. I mean, the personality traits that we're talking about are pe uh, personality traits that people have in life. I mean, the diva personality trait, let us say, is is essentially someone who is focusing on themselves and what they can get from a situation. That could be in a workplace, could be behind the bar here, it could be uh, in a bookstore, it could be out on the streets, or as opposed to someone who's thinking about how they can serve, how they can contribute in my own work. As an actor, what is helpful for me is to recognize that I'm not there for myself only, right? Right. If I if I think I'm there, which is a place I have been in the past, um, but rather to recognize that there's a whole group of people, in this case the audience, but also my fellow players and so and on. And the playwright. And the playwright. And the director right oh no you've got the whole you've got the whole world <laughs> right yeah right it's not so much um for me a kind of self-abnegation uh that i don't matter i'm 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 very <laughs> if anything i would tip in the other direction i'm afraid the the promising uh 
personality is is someone that can learn them. What's the other one on the other side of the promising? So how would they move to to a, a more effective way of being? They start honoring themselves. And what would that entail? Feeling selfish. Sometimes I like to give homework. Go feel selfish for the week. Oh, my God, that's hard. And in a performance, being involved in, let us say, the production of a play. Yeah. What would that involve? Don't let somebody step on your curtain. (laughs) Oh, if somebody's rushing a line, talk to them. If something doesn't connect, if you're not connecting, talk to the person. It has a lot to do with connection. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I think that in order to do that, I know in the in the environments in which I work, one must have a, a very strong relationship to begin with, to begin to negotiate in any way how someone else approaches their work. Yes. You have to be very, very careful. But you cannot dismiss your own belief system your own needs, your own point of view, your own vision. You don't have to step on the person or demean the person. It's a conversation. Right. Yes. And then one has to be very careful about when you're getting into the other person's area of work. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Is there more that you want to say about the book before we open it up for questions? I think this group looks very eager to ask Very good. Let us do that. Let us do that. It sounds like... Well, that's a people who'd love to ask some questions. Questions from anybody. Yeah. In terms of your coaching, how long into your psychotherapy practice or in your graduate or how soon did you start working as a coach as well? Or incorporate your coaching? About 12 years ago, I started being a coach. And I think it's really helpful for performers because it introduced a line of accountability. Can I ask why you asked that question? Because it's a really good question. <laughs> well, I'm also a psychotherapist. Okay. I'm CSW. And I, uh, so my specialty is also working with artists. Oh. But I also went to corporate coaching. So I know there's a whole separate certification, years of studying. And uh, I know that sometimes you don't necessarily need to be certified as a coach to do coaching. Um, I went to a school to be certified. You're not um, licensed. There's no license, which is really too bad. In terms of coaching, you were talking about the responsibility part of it, of artists being held to some uh, account. And it seems to me that that's, that's something that would be really useful, you found, because a lot of times artists are people who are kind of working out of the right brain and the organized part, the, the left brain is... is uh, <laughs> and so to have someone holding them accountable for actions, it must be very helpful. That's what you found? It is. It's kind of a shock. For some artists, you mean? Yeah. You know, and this is a little off topic, but since we're um, taking questions, I'll, t- I'll, I'll ask a question now. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'll ask a question, which is, um, in writing this book, you, you have um, told me and uh, re- read your blog post that you felt you couldn't write a book. You felt that you weren't a writer. And so the book was a kind of a, uh, a milestone for you. It was doing something that you thought you couldn't do. And we've all been in that situation. Uh, why was it that you thought you couldn't write a book? Uh, I can't spell. 
cannot spell. And I want to introduce my collaborator, Diane. Anybody who collaborates should have a collaborator like that. So Diane helped you uh, with that part of the book that you, where you were like, I can't, I can't spell, I can't, I can't face uh, the the page. It's going to make me feel terrible about myself. I mean, I think that that's just a really, really great takeaway for me that we all have those things that we think we can't do. I can't do that thing. But for me, it was dancing. I can't dance. So then really? they. I never knew. Oh, that. yeah. So then, of course, you know, Aeneas Mitchell wrote the transformative moment of Hades Town is Hades and Persephone dance. <laughs> you know, one thing I cannot do is the most important moment in the show. And, and so that's. You know, the challenge. and this When you change what you're thinking. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, I, and, I had to, and I had to change it. I had to change yeah. it in order to approach that moment, or I would just freeze up with terror every single time. Well, terror is the word. Mm -hmm. What we did a lot, we call it riffing, and I riffed, and Diane would just scribble. <laughs> and by God, it worked. What else would we do? <laughs> okay, so that's a fun story, I think. So, other questions? Yeah. Okay, so, hi. I was checking the book. I just got it, but I read something that I thought was very interesting. It said, how much stress do you want in your life? So, my question is, do we always have, or do we always need zero stress? Or do you think stress is important to be a performer in a way? Do I think your question is, do I think stress is important to a performer? Yes, I do you think stress is always a bad thing or not necessarily? I think it's how we handle stress. When I say stress, wh what do you think about stress? Uh, uncomfortable. I want to run away from it. You don't want it in your life. I do not want it. How many people don't want stress in their lives? Because <laughs> 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 we're all going to have stress in our lives. It's how we handle it. I think he's, were you also suggesting that perhaps some stress can be motivating? Or, yeah. Then, uh, is stress always bad, or is sometimes the stress some kind of motivating factor? Uh, can you say more about the kind of stress that you would find motivating? I was thinking maybe pressure. Like giving yourself like a deadline could be stressful, but it could also help sometimes. A lot of people do their best work under pressure. Oh, I've got to get this uh, memorized by tomorrow. If that works for you, terrific. People I've found in the arts have their ways of going about things. I think that's pretty rough, but if it works, it works. Do you find that if you're, uh, are you an actor? I'm a journalist, but I perform sometimes. Okay. Well, and if you wait to the last minute, do you wait to the last minute? A little times I do. Yeah. <laughs> and does it work? Not sometimes, but sometimes it's also like really hard to think. Yeah. So it's a choice. You have to figure out what that choice is giving you. And it is giving you something. 
the something may not be so good for you. It's something really to reflect on when you. <laughs> I, I, I think that taking care of yourself, what you're talking about, is like if I, if I prepare thoroughly for whatever it is I have to do, that's taking care of myself. Absolutely. And if I give myself time to yes. do it, that is taking care of myself. Absolutely. Yeah. If you have to learn lines yeah. or a monologue, yeah. we have to talk about what you're about to do. I mean, Patrick is in rehearsal for a play called All the Devils Are Here. I think it's 13 Devils. Of uh, uh, 13 sounds good. Yeah, let's say 13. <laughs> it changes. <laughs> let's say 13 of Shakespeare's Devils. You procrastinate because, oh, um, you and Paige have the greatest dinner plan and your puppy needs attention and they're good things. So you just don't learn the monologue, oh, damned it, spot. <laughs> or something like that. You are not identifying your wants and needs because it, it, it goes into previews pretty soon, doesn't it? Yeah, next Friday. <laughs> so procrastination can be a form of not thinking about what is good for you and really compartmentalizing that. My question I guess is about when I, I had this problem when I would audition, I never felt ready. So I almost sabotaged myself constantly because I thought I'm not ready. Even if it was fantastic to some people, it wasn't ready for me. And I did see a therapist who said to me, how much do you feel ready? I said about 65%. They give us a hundred percent of that 65%. I was like, okay. And then I thought, well, that worked. And then, and then I thought, no, it didn't. It's just 65%. I need to be ready. And no matter how ready I am, I feel there could be more. Mm. So there's a little bit of a sabotage in there with that. So is, is, do you address that in the book? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I need it. <laughs> Self-sabotage. Yes. That's a real thing. Um, yeah, please. That's a thought process. It's called outcome thinking. You leave yourself because I don't care if it's 85% or 92% or 16%. It's an outcome. You need to be with yourself. Percentages don't matter. You go in there and you inhabit a character. And I don't care if you prepare or not. You are with you. And what who, What was your last audition? It's been a while. Okay. Uh, Is this making sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. See, sure. okay. um, so you think of results. You think of outcome. You can't be with yourself. How can you think of I have to be 75% and be with who you're inhabiting. Just I hear you. You're talking about being present. Yes. Yeah. Being there. Be present. You can't be. 
it has nothing to do with percentage. It has to do with who you are in this yeah. audition. I think we're all guilty of it, too. Is that sort of imposter syndrome that right along here? They're all seeing, but they're way ahead of me. What's going on? Am I actually talented? What's happening? Imposter syndrome. Talk to them. Talk to them. <laughs> well, we have it, don't we? I mean, I have it. I think a lot of people have it. And uh, I think just for me, uh, in working with Elma and in my own experience, acknowledging it and just saying, oh, yes, these are thoughts in my head. They're not me. They're not, I don't have to pay attention to them. They're, they're, I've got this tape running that's telling me I don't belong here, that I'm not good enough, whatever. And uh, people have all sorts of different ways of quieting that. For a long time, I quieted that with alcohol. I've been sober for three years now. That didn't work. Um, uh, and it's, it's just... Yes. Uh, well, uh, um, although yesterday was a, 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 an anniversary. It's just about like, oh, yes, that tape is running and I don't have to believe it. You know what I mean? It's going to run. And it, it might go away someday if you stop believing it, if you stop listening to it and thinking that it's you. Um, it's just a tape running. You know how sometimes you'll get a, a, a song caught in your head? It's like that. It's just like a song caught in your head. It's a familiar tape that's running. And you, let's say, oh, I've got that song caught in my head today. But if I say right now, uh, master of the house, you'll all go home and you'll have master of the house here. Um, and you see the power of it. Some, someone at some point, you got this thing where someone said master of the house and it's running in your head, right? But that's all it is. It's just noise. You're there. They selected you. You're doing the work. You're clearly, that's where you're meant to be. That's what you're doing. And then that goes to what Elma is saying about then you're there a hundred percent. Now for me, what you said, every person's different, right? Some people, they're like, no, I can't prepare. I have to go in. Brando couldn't prepare. He had to go in. They had to feed him his lines in his, in his ear because he had to be there in that moment. He couldn't prepare. It didn't work for him. For me, I have to prepare so much. So I, I have to, I have to know the thing backwards, forwards, inside out. Uh, I just saw an interview with Rachel Brosnahan where she said, how do I learn lines? I have to do the lines at least 300 times memorized. I have to know them and run them at least 300 times after I've learned them in order to go on set and have the confidence to play the scene. That's how I am. But Anthony you, Hopkins said 250 times. That's how I am. Yeah. You can prepare, but that's not what you're talking about. I, I don't think. What you're talking about, it's still not enough because that's the outcome. Right. He's saying that it's never enough. No matter how I think that's what's happening. The, 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 the bar moves. Yeah. And I, I, I've had that experience. I remember when I was auditioning early on, I, I tried not preparing very much and that didn't work. And then I tried preparing so much and that didn't work. And not only did that not work, it cost too much when I didn't get the job emotionally that I, I had thrown myself into it and done so much work. And then I didn't get the job. It's like, fuck it. I'm not going to do that. So when I auditioned for the Grinch, I went in and I didn't prepare much, but guess what I did? Because the character was someone that I knew deeply from my childhood, I was able to just be there. 
and not be in Alcove. I was able to be there in that room and to play as if the role was already mine, which is really the trick. You go in and you say, on this day, on this audition, I get to perform for this group of people, four people, two people, for a musical, 20 people sometimes sitting behind the table. I get to perform. That's all I'm doing. That's my job today. My job isn't getting the job. My job I, is I just I get like to perform. I like what you said. I get to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little opportunity to do what I think I was made to do, which is perform and then let go. And for auditions, I like to, I think maybe we talked about this at one point, I like to have something scheduled afterwards that I can look forward to so that the audition isn't the big thing in the day. I know that I, I really struggled with uh, stage fright for auditions that Elma helped me with a lot. And we talked it through and talked it through and talked it through. And I would still go into the audition. My throat would dry up. My knees would shake. My hands would shake. And for me, what Elma helped me uh, realize is that I had this idea in my head of perfection, of the golden boy who couldn't fail. And so when I put myself in a situation where failure was possible, I just was, you know, it was impossible. Well, we talked that through for about 10 years. <laughs> it worked. Uh, well, it didn't, it didn't work wholly because after about 10 years, uh, I, the voices had stopped in my head, but my body hadn't gotten the memo. But you know, failure is always possible because you can be so great in an audition. And they give it to somebody who's two feet tall. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And if, you, if you've ever sat behind one of those tables, you realize that it is really not down to how someone did nine times out of ten. Usually everybody in the room is viable and it's to do with pairings. It's to do with certain eye all, color, <laughs> all kinds of things that we can't control. Um, so the opportunity to go in and do what you do and be, you know, you, you got into this because if you're like me, you got into it because it was fun. So go in and have fun. Yes. That's, you know, the imposter syndrome has a lot to do, um, with failure to define failure for yourself. Really think about what is failure in your business. Because it's so arbitrary and makes so little sense. I think you really have to write down or dictate your phone or whatever. Thousands of definitions, not thousands, but several definitions of failure. Redefine failure. Yeah. Because you get to choose whether or not that's a failure. Yeah. 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 Or define success. Pardon me? Change your thinking. Right. When no, 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 no. I'm going all my I'll see you all at group therapy next week. Um, so I think I think that if I had to define success tonight would absolutely be the picture definition of that. So thank you very much, Elma. Welcome back. Okay, so I was near tears by the end of that yeah. <laughs> event. I was near tears when she told me that she did not, in fact, take health insurance. <laughs> exactly. I was going to need to book a session. <laughs> I wish. I do. I, I liked 
what she had to say about how to turn rejection into something good mm-hmm. and how to, oh. If you change, uh, you dear listeners just heard, <laughs> just listen to that. Me, change what you think. You can change, change what, what you're doing. doing. Yeah. <laughs> I and like it that. Almost, it almost sounds too simplistic. You got to distill it down to the most simple. Mm-hmm. We, I think we want it to be hard. We do. We want it to be something that we can't overcome because then we have the excuse for not yeah. trying. Yeah. And I think this is something of like, it reminds us, no. Make it as simple as possible. Yeah. I think my my spin for things, and it's something I'm doing a lot this year, I'm in my submissions era, and so I'm submitting to all sorts of Mark things. Mark is in his submissions era tour. Yeah. <laughs> I'm submitting, I have six shows that have been uh-huh. out in the world, and I yeah. am like, where else can they go? Oh, Sending them all over the place. So I have this goal, and I have a spreadsheet and everything, that I'm going to fail a hundred times this year. Which sounds ludicrous. Okay. It sounds crazy. I would like to not no, only like fail. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but I like it. That means I have to try a hundred times. That means uh-huh. I, there's a hundred things I have to submit my work for, whether it's an audition or uh, a grant or anything to to get my work out there. I have to submit, and it's exciting and it's terrifying, and it also takes the sting off a little bit because then when you don't get it, and then when that thing mm-hmm. happens, it's like. Damn it. But, oh, cool. I get to cross it off and I have one more red line. So it's one less I got to do. Yeah. And and I had to put it to the test because there was a, a playwright opportunity I was up for. And it, 75 people applied. I was in the top five. I was in the interview process. I hate knowing that. Yeah. No, we had we had an interview. It was delightful. Mm-hmm. The people were wonderful. And I do wish them the best because it just sounds amazing. I wanted it. It was in Chicago for a certain amount of time. And I was very excited. And I found out like about a week after the interview that I did not make that final cut. Mm-hmm. And yes, that stung. Yeah. But it also was like, top five's not bad. No. And then I got to go and take my little red <laughs> pen yeah. and cross it off and be like, one less failure. You know, as someone who who sits behind the audition table yeah. a lot. I know that if I see 75 people in a day, most of them are going to be wonderful. Exactly. Like, it's not like I saw five amazing people and 70 clunkers. I saw 75, for the most part, amazing people. But if I only have five spots, I know from casting that ultimately... I have to make a choice. And and I've frequently said there's no such thing as the best person for the role. If it comes down to there being three people who are amazing and perfect for the role and could be considered the right one for the role, the best one for the role, I can only cast one of them. True, true. Hopefully, this is for another episode, hopefully my show runs long enough that someone leaves the show and then I get to call Someone, and I, I don't even want to say my second choice, but I get to call someone else and say, hey, you auditioned for me. Would you like to come back? Um, See, this is why I can't do casting, because I just want to give roles to everybody. Right. We'll just write new characters. Yeah. We'll just add more people. Like, let's make it bigger. But I let's know, cast them all. I know that even when it comes down to, you know, the top three people, and you're sitting there at the bar with the headshots out, you only have one part. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. Even if I get down to the top five, if I don't get it, it's not a reflection on me. They only had one spot. Exactly. To- you have to try because you can't. You can't get anything if you don't. 
Yeah. It's very rare that something just shows up on your doorstep. It's been like a good experience. Like you out of the blue and saying, I know this guy named Marky Jean Garcia, and he's writing, a musical? The, he's writing the libretto of a musical that I got the rights to, and I just heard your music, and I think that you should write the music to it. Yeah, exactly. You can't expect that to happen. Not every time. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so glad Speaking it did. That I got in 2008. Wow. Yeah. My God, that was so long ago. Speaking of time, what's going on next week? We've got a two-parter. Two-parter. This was one of those events where no one wanted to leave. No, we we just and kept we just holding it. <laughs> we just, including us, including everyone who worked here, was like, we don't ever need to go home. No, uh, it was it was a book by Eddie Shapiro called "Here's to the Ladies," and in the book he interviewed so many leading ladies of Broadway. And this was his third book. He has done <laughs> Nothing Like a Dame, Conversations with Great Women of Musical Theater, and A Wonderful Guy, Conversations with Great Men of Musical Theater, as well as Queens in the Kingdom, The Ultimate Gay and Lesbian Guide to the Disney Theme Parks. So he knows his way around these Broadway stars. So this is his second book of interviews with leading ladies and it's called here's to the ladies and he invited some of the subjects of the book to come and chat with us and they did what what a chat we had so much so that we are going to have to break this up into two episodes so that'll be starting next friday i am so looking forward to that oh so much <laughs> i'm i can't wait to revisit it and all of the stories and i can't wait for you all to hear these stories that sounds astounding. So please follow us on our event, right? Please follow all of our socials for the story you can follow at Drama Book Shop. And for the show, you can follow at Drama Book Show Podcast. And we'll see, see you at the, the bookshop. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.